This is Dr. Todd May, and this is Living Philosophy. The year 2021 is coming to an end, and with it, the end of our first season of 24 episodes. I hope you've enjoyed hearing the stories and sharing in the wisdom and inspiration from our guests, who began their second lives despite physical, emotional, and psychological obstacles. As well, I hope you found that our new edition of the Public Philosophy Podcast provided a great deal of clarity and insight into some of the most important issues and questions of our time. We've heard from a wonderful range of professional and academic guests, and with this annual enroll episode, I suppose it's my turn to offer some concluding thoughts. I am sure for many of you, this year has been an unprecedented one for change. On a personal note, my wife and I quit our tenured academic jobs. We left close friends in the UK to return to the US to be closer to American friends and our family. And of course, I started this podcast series as well as my own consultation business on meaningful work. Sadness, excitement, relief, and anxiety all rolled into several months of transitioning. It's not just the pandemic that has brought us to reflect on how we live our everyday lives, but it's also how the pandemic has put into relief those moments in which we get that niggling feeling that something is not quite right and we ought to change something significant about how we're living. Another way of thinking about this potential for transformation is that the pandemic is the epitome of change. It has asked us to reconsider ourselves by radically changing the physical, psychological, emotional, and social landscapes in which we dwell. Change, as it has been observed by philosophers, is that process of nature and reality that continues despite what we believe and think. We can alter the course of events to better suit our own ends, but that does not eliminate change. It merely allows it to flow and overflow in different directions. The Stoic philosophers remind us that we ought not to try to change those things that are out of our control. It will only end badly, or if it does not, we might be deceived into thinking we have gained some mastery over some domain of reality. Whatever the case, it's a Stoic truism to say that what we can control is our rational and emotional response to things that happen to us. Well, such a Stoic thought can tend towards a kind of fatalism in which we merely accept what happens to us. We should not forget that what is specifically human about the encounter with change is how we transition and transform ourselves. I think that ideally for the Stoic, this transition is one into reason, where being in control of ourselves is a way of being in tune with reality. But there are other interesting ways of thinking about transitions in the face of momentous change. Ideas in transition management theory and existentialism emphasize the importance of a first response to changes that challenge us. And this response is a recognition of the role of vulnerability, not just in oneself, but in others. For the business consultant, William Bridges, this means that managing change in an organization cannot forget the human experience of losing what is familiar and having to adapt to uncertainty. For the French existential philosopher, Gabriel Marcel, the heart of vulnerability is a virtue that enables one to be open or available to the unfamiliar and especially to our fellow human beings. Yet many of us have either experienced or seen quite the opposite this year. We've seen factionalization, misrepresentation, and isolationism in many guises. 
It is tempting to blame the way in which media and social media capitalize on our fears and hopes. Headlines and tweets bait us with ideas aiming to affirm our convictions or create outrage in us. It seems that the ability to recognize our own vulnerability is not really possible when swaths of negative emotions run over us. It's clear that the fear-mongering and factionalization on media and social media needs to stop. But we know that such a change requires a fundamental transformation of the way news reporting and social discourse platforms are incentivized. It's an old story that boils down to a simple observation about humans. We're lazy and suspicious when it comes to encountering what appears new. That is, we like the familiar, and we'll do things that require the least amount of effort. Reacting emotionally is not a bad thing, but merely and unreflectively doing so is. We can too easily slide into seeking affirmation from those who think like us. We'd rather communicate with likes and dislikes, shares and upvotes, rather than dialogue and listening. Short of revolution, it seems doubtful that regulation of industries relying on news and social media will make the significant changes in view of a more humanistic environment. Regulation rarely begets transformation when it comes to human behavior and understanding. It merely begets box ticking. Perhaps one day there will be an unexpected catalyst to initiate this change. Until then, it seems that we require a remedy that each of us might be able to take up and practice. If we cannot recognize our own vulnerability, how others are also vulnerable, and how this vulnerability opens on to a more responsive and responsible disposition to take seriously the standing of others, then how might we create this awareness? There are a lot of tempting answers. The French philosopher Paul Ricoeur builds an ethical theory based on the idea that each one of us can exist as if we were like another person, oneself as another. John Stuart Mill appeals to our natural, albeit uncultivated, sentiment to be in unity with others. Immanuel Kant believes that if we take our capacity to reason seriously, then we will respect other rational beings. Hannah Arendt observes that each of us, as individuals, is equal only by virtue of our being different. Belonging together in a community is thus akin to allowing the real opportunity for each plural individual to articulate their respective story. These are what the Nobel Prize-winning economist Amartya Sen would call ideal theories, since they begin at the most universal level and offer a picture of how existence ought to be at its best. There is a place for such theories, and there is also a place for more pragmatic ideas. Consider these practices and steps that make us more capable of realizing what is ideal, what might be best for us and others. If one of the most pressing problems that we have seen magnified today is our inability to get along with one another, that we are divided, it might be tempting to believe that we ought to be more unified in identity. But another thought, which I find more persuasive, is the idea that unity resides in how many of our differences hang together. So we're not looking to be more of the same, but looking for ways in which differences can coexist. There are different versions of this coexistence. One is tolerance, where we merely tolerate others who are different. And we might add a proviso offered by John Locke, which has to do with property, but we can nonetheless signpost it here. We can express and live our differences so long as it does not disadvantage another. I call this the minimalist approach to coexistence. It tries to create a neutral social space where each of us can go on living 
as we do so long as no one comes to harm. There are three problems with this model. First, harm tends to arise in ways we don't expect and can take shape physically, emotionally, racially, microaggressively, and so on. So the lack of harm tends to be a vague measure at best and really does depend on who suffers the consequence of an action, habit, or lifestyle. Second, its aspiration seems flat and disengaged. Or to put this another way, tolerance is missing out on the richness of life. How? Difference is there to open us up to new understandings and possibilities. Trivially, think of cuisine and how the experience of new foods, even despite some trepidation, disclose new worlds of dining, enjoyment, and conversation for you. Less trivially, a failure to understand the views and habits of another leads to isolation. The great renaissances throughout history have involved new forms of art, philosophy, and technology, but only so because such new forms have been introduced or reintroduced by a different culture. Finally, no civilization ever began and flourished by itself. To live otherwise would be an act of bad faith. Quite to the contrary, the flourishing of civilizations depends on how often and substantially it can innovate in the face of change. Tolerance can help maintain an open mind to new encounters, but what is really required is a constructive and thoughtful engagement and inquiry into change and transformation. So what then is a better model than mere tolerance? I should be clear, I'm not saying that we get rid of tolerance. I'm just saying tolerance does not set the bar high enough when it comes to social cohesion and flourishing. Instead, I want to propose a model based on questioning and listening. To call it the questioning-listening model is a bit cumbersome, so I'm just going to use some philosophical shorthand to encapsulate its ethos. The hermeneutical model. Hermeneutics, as we've heard from time to time on the podcast, is a branch of philosophy interested in the problems of interpreting the meaning of texts, dialogues, symbols, and existence. So what's the upshot of the hermeneutical model? It's practically quite straightforward and modest. It's this. We should strive to agree on the same set of questions to ask, not even trying to agree on answers, just the same questions, the ones that matter to life. And we can begin small with questions about one's own life and then expand by concentric circles to include the lives of others, even those of animals, plants, and dare I say, the planet. I'm not proposing that we ask and pursue these questions together. The task of asking meaningful questions and inquiring earnestly is itself a significant process that often results in intellectual, emotional, and personal transformation. Perhaps you have witnessed this process yourself when you've heard an interesting question or puzzle and then not only pursued an answer, but engaged with others along the way. I've seen this work in my own profession as an academic when opposing schools of thought found common ground, discovering they were respectively working to answer the same set of questions, and on the retail floor when trying to connect with a customer about their interests in the outdoors and what they were expecting from their gear or their awaiting adventure. All it takes is recognizing the importance of the right question or questions. I think we can learn a lot about ourselves and others or about ourselves from others if we understood the power and role of questions in this philosophical and hermeneutical sense. And that is to say, By questioning ourselves and listening to others, we initiate a process of transformation where many of our differences can hang together in a synergy that is also our collective resource to meet what comes.
I think there are some good channels where this questioning can begin, perhaps even on social media, which allows for more engaged discussions. In the meanwhile, let me ask you, the listener, what question would you ask that we might pursue? This is Dr. Todd May on the annual Enroll for Living Philosophy. I would like to thank my sponsors, Hilary Hutchinson, Martin Bunzel, Jeffrey Moore, and Philosophy to You for their financial support. The Tour Studios for their thumbnail artwork of the Public Philosophy Podcasts. And I would like to thank you for listening. I hope the new year brings both the inspiration to live well and the wisdom to practice doing it. And don't forget, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.